asking you guys to come back together, and you did. Well done, everybody. Proud of y'all. Hey, by the way, do you see the angel's wings are moving back here? Yes. <laughs> How are any of y'all going to be able to, like, concentrate on the sermon tonight? That might be a blessing and a curse. We'll see. Um, all right, Dave and Beth, you guys, great job. It's, it's time to stand, so let's do that, if you would. Stand for the reading of God's Word. Sometimes they guess right, sometimes they guess wrong. Tonight, they guessed correctly. And um, we're in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Um, should be up here on your screen. And if you would, follow along with me as I read this for us from the Gospel in the New Testament. Romans 5 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. If you would, remain standing as I pray for us. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth this afternoon and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Father God, give your Holy Spirit to allow that to happen. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ and in his name alone, amen. Amen, thanks for standing. You guys can go ahead and be seated. I promise I won't make you stand right back up again. Okay, so we just read the exact same passage that we did last week. If you were here at church last Sunday, you know that it was the first five verses of Romans 5 that we read then and we did it again uh, this evening and that's on purpose. As we talked about last week, our, our intention for Advent, these weeks leading up to Christmas is that we're gonna camp out and these five verses um, for four weeks in a row. So we did it last week, we'll do it tonight, and then two more leading up to Christmas. And the reason why is because I noticed in our prep that not only is this part of Romans the next piece of the sermon series going through the book of Romans, it's the place we are in our study on the book, but it's also a spot in the scripture that very clearly highlights these four key themes of Advent that we talk about every year. It's what we do when we light these four candles, peace, joy, hope, and love. If you noticed in the passage that we read, all four of those words have kind of their time to shine in this little paragraph. And so what we decided to do is that we would reread this scripture each week of Advent, but each time sort of shine the spotlight on one of those different themes of Advent. Starting last week with peace, we shine the spotlight on peace and focused on that. This week, what we're gonna do is we're gonna shift the spotlight over a little bit a little bit deeper into the passage, and we're gonna talk about joy. Joy as we see it here, but also joy as we understand it uh, in the Advent season. Now, technically, there is no mention of the actual word joy 
in the passage that we read. However, there's a close relative to that word that came up a couple of different times in the passage. Uh, This is a softball question, but I'm gonna throw it out to you. What is that word? Rejoice, yes, that's it. And even somebody came up to me after I preached in paradise this morning and said, well, you know, the French version of the word joy is actually embedded in the word rejoice, J-O-I. So, you know, I guess it is technically there. So, but if you're not counting foreign languages and just thinking of English, the word joy isn't technically there, but rejoice is, and it comes up twice in our passage. And we're gonna use that as kind of the entryway into a reflection about the joy that we see at Christmas time, and especially as it's kind of meditated on in Romans 5. Um, Before we kind of get into the nitty gritty though of this particular mission of rejoicing in the passage, we need to do the thing that we did last week, and that is kind of ask the question, why do we make such a big deal about joy at Christmas time in the first place? Why why do we have an entire candle of the Advent wreath dedicated to joy? Why do I have this giant oversized Christmas ornament on my tree that just says joy? Why does every single Hallmark movie around Christmas time seem to have joy in the title or subtitle? We make a big, big deal about joy at Christmas and the question is why? And I know for a lot of you guys, you're like, it's obvious. But let's just, let's trace it back and and find exactly uh, why it is that we talk about it so uh, definitively in Advent and Christmas time. One of the reasons might be because when the Bible proclaims what's happened at Christmas, AKA the birth of Jesus, the savior, the angel that proclaims it, well, I I think I've got it up on the screen. Uh, This is gonna be a a familiar verse to you, Luke 2.10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It's the first thing the angel says has happened at Christmas. Great joy. Or we could, we could back up. Isaiah 9, we looked at this passage a little bit last week, but we didn't read this part of it. And the prophecy about the child that would be born, uh, the one that's called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, Prince of Peace. We also see this, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So whether it be in the proclamation of what's happened at Christmas or the anticipation of it, like the prophets did in the past, joy is a huge element of what they're saying happens when the Messiah comes into the world. And this last one, well, this one's just cheating. I just copied what the Petersons read for us. This is the song of Mary and Luke. First thing that she sings when she hears that she'll be the mother of Jesus is my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my savior. We could keep going, but I think hopefully the point's pretty clear that when the Bible speaks about Jesus coming at Christmas, it makes it abundantly clear that when he comes, he comes bringing joy. And he comes bringing a lot of it. 
The joy that Christ brings, um, it's not just people joy. I know we think of it, we're like, okay, people hear about Jesus, they get happy, they get excited. Actually, the joy that Jesus brings at Christmas is joy for all of creation. Do you realize that? When you sing joy to the world, which we did tonight, right? Forgive me, I should know this, but I actually was helping with something outside during the first song. But that was the first song that we sang tonight, right? No? It's gonna be the last song. (laughs) Jordan flipped the order on me. It was the first song or it was early in the set this morning, right? You did that just to embarrass me, Jordan. Mission accomplished. I'm very embarrassed. Well, anyways, when we sing Joy to the World later tonight, here's what you're gonna sing. You're gonna sing that fields and floods, rocks, heal, (laughs) that's my Southern accent coming out, rocks, hills, and plains, repeat the sounding joy. Uh, The man that wrote that, that song, his name was Isaac Watts, and he used as the sort of the basis of that carol, Psalm 98. And it was a wise decision because what he realized is that what had happened at Christmas was exactly what that Psalm discusses when it says, when the Lord reveals his salvation, the rivers will clap, the hills will sing, the seas will roar, all of nature will realize what's happened and they'll be overcome with joy that Jesus the Savior is in our midst. There's a word that we could use for that kind of joy and it's abundant. The joy that Jesus brings to the world is abundant. That is, it is enough to go around and more. It's enough for the nations to praise his name. It's enough for the church to praise his name. It's enough for creation and the world, the angels in heaven, all of it. His joy is so abundant that it is enough to cause everything just to explode in gladness at the coming of Jesus. And even even just when we think about ourselves at a personal level, the joy that Jesus brings is enough to fill our heart to the brim if we let it. It's enough to to, uh, to take what's often for us a, a piecemeal and divided heart that is sort of pulled in many different ways, has many different affections, and yet the joy that Christ brings is enough to fill us up to bursting if we allow it. So much so that kind of like the picture that I have up here on the screen, it's like, <laughs> it's like a cup that runs over. And I wonder if something like this might be part of what Paul was thinking about when he wrote the words that we have in Romans 5 that we read tonight. And here's what I mean by that. Maybe, maybe what he was reflecting on is that when Jesus comes into the world, his joy is so full, it's so abundant that it begins to spill over the places that we usually feel it. And his joy begins to spill into places that we usually don't experience joy. It begins to go into uncharted territory that we normally don't find joy at all. And yet, because it's so much, it's so abundant, here it is spilling into other areas of our life that we never would have expected. 
So let, let's run with this a little bit and let's, let's think of the cup up here. Um, and let's imagine that that's, the cup is, it's our heart. It's the places where we normally experience joy. So it's happiness, it's gladness, it's that sense of mirth that we get when we see God's blessing. It's the excitement we have of seeing each other in fellowship, good friends and times together. It's, it's the excitement of seeing God answer a prayer or, or, or thinking about the sweet promises that he gives us in the scripture. All of those things we're used to uh, when we think about the joy that Christ brings, their feelings that we know and it doesn't shock us that we feel joy in those areas. But just like we have in the picture here, the joy of Christ is so abundant that it doesn't stop in the usual places that we normally put it. It just keeps coming. And it starts to overflow out of the usual spots and into places that we'd never expect to see it. Sometimes into places that are dark and scary and that we're more accustomed just to feeling pain and sadness and sorrow. Sometimes the joy of Christ is so abundant that it spills out into our suffering of all places. And that's why I said earlier that maybe Paul was considering something like this when he wrote what he did in Romans 5. Because you saw right in the middle of the passage that we read is this, well, truthfully, a shocking statement. Verse three says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, this is the second mention of rejoice in our passage. I know there was one before it. We're, we'll get to that at the end. But for now, I want you to see that verse three part. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And I want you to notice this. It doesn't say that we rejoice in spite of our sufferings or we rejoice despite our sufferings. That's sometimes how we wrap our head around statements like this in the Bible. We think things like, okay, I get it. It's saying that the joy of Christ is so solid, it's so stable that no matter what happens in life, my joy can't be taken from me. And that's true. I mean, that's an amen statement right there. And there are plenty of other places in the Bible that we could see that kind of idea being presented that we rejoice in spite of our sufferings. Our sufferings can't rob us of our joy. Amen. However, that is not technically what this is saying. What this is saying is not that we rejoice in spite of our sufferings, but we rejoice in our sufferings. The suffering itself is the source of our delight, which is crazy. And honestly, very sobering to stand up here before you and say. Now, I wanna be careful and I, and I don't think any of y'all would be assuming this, but just to make sure that we don't go down the wrong track. The Bible is not promoting masochism, which is an unhealthy delight in pain or sorrow. That's not what this is saying. 
nor is it sort of peddling some new philosophy that takes the bad things of the world and all of a sudden says, actually, those are inherently good. No, the bad things of the world are not inherently good. What this is saying is not that we celebrate suffering in itself, but rather we celebrate the knowledge that we know it's leading somewhere good. We know that our heavenly father is using it in such a way to lead us to somewhere, to prepare us for something that's good. If we keep reading in the passage, that, and I cut this off, I know earlier, it says, verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's this, this chain that's happening. And you know, my, my point tonight in this passage is not to break down every piece, you know, the endurance, the character, the hope. Uh, many better preachers than me probably could do that. Really what I wanna give us is the, the bird's eye view of the fact that what this is saying is that when suffering comes our way, we can rejoice in it because we know God is using it to shape us to mold us, to, to, to mature us in faith, to grow our, 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 our love and our compassion and our Christ-likeness. Sometimes he's using it to chasten us like a loving father does. And all in all, it's being used to make us more and more like Jesus. Tell me, is that good? It is. And you know, I'm, I'm glad there was a tepid response there because it's not something, if we're being honest, it's not something that we say, yes, it's good, it's good. It's hard. It hurts. But it's good. We talked earlier about how Mary, when she hears the news of Jesus coming into the world at Christmas, that she's gonna be the mother of the Savior, that the first things out of her mouth were these words of song. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And the portion of it that we read in the prayer tonight is her in the beginning of, of, of her song talking about the great things the Lord has done for her. And indeed, he did a lot of awesome things for Mary. She should have been praising him for that. But if you continue to read down through the rest of this song, she begins to focus her attention on what he's done for the people. And in particular, her people, the people Israel. And thinking about this this week, I wondered if, if part of what Mary is so excited about, part of the reason she's rejoicing at what she hears is coming with Christ at Christmas is she's rejoicing over the fact that all the suffering and the hardship and the pain that her people had gone through for generations, it was not in vain. It had been preparing them and molding them and shaping them for this moment when the Messiah arrived so they could be ready. 
That's really another way of putting what I said before about why we can rejoice in our suffering. We know it's molding and shaping us, God's using it. But another way of putting it is we can rejoice in our suffering because we realize it's not aimless. It's not purposeless. It's not leading to a dead end. It's going somewhere. And that somewhere is good. And so when Mary hears from Gabriel, the messenger angel, and hears what's happening, she says, the 40 years in the wilderness long ago, the multiple exiles that God's people had to go through with tears, even the 400 years of silence right before this moment, it wasn't aimless. God was preparing us. He was shaping us. He was using this for endurance and character and hope so that we would be ready for this moment when Jesus comes into the world and we can say, this is good. What I hope that you're hearing me say, I'll bring it back to the cup. All right, I, I was so excited about finding that picture of the cup with water flowing out of it. I was like, I gotta talk about this. The joy Jesus brings at Christmas is so abundant that it begins to flow out of the places where you usually experience joy and it begins to splash into places that you never expected. And that same joy, the, the giant Christmas ornament that I have that says joy in cursive and all those cheesy Hallmark movies that have joy in the title, that same joy they're talking about for the follower of Jesus can be found even in their suffering, as crazy as that is to say. Because we know that when life gets hard, God is up to something good. There's a lot of something goods that God can be up to in our life. And I'm sure every single one of us in here maybe has a story or a experience of seeing how a, a difficult moment or difficult season in their life, God was using to prepare them for something better. However, there's something God's preparing us for that is the ultimate good, that stands head and shoulders above the rest. And it's our final destination as believers when we stand before God in all of his glory. Well, I'm at a loss for words about what to say after that. For some reason, I wanna say one of my favorite passages, Psalm 16 at the very end says, in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what God's preparing us for. This was the uh, part of the verse that I skipped over initially. The end of verse two says this, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And you notice that hope was also the end of that chain that we talked about with endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. We're gonna talk about more about hope next week, but for now, I want you to see that the end of that chain is the hope of standing in the presence of the glory of God. <laughs> I know I've said this a billion times tonight, but that is good. 
and maybe more than you originally see with this passage. I I was really helped this week by a little study note in the ESV study Bible. Many of you guys probably have that with you tonight. You can see it. But it said this on Romans 5, 2. It said, the hope of the glory of God refers to the promise that Christians will be glorified and perfected on the last day, a hope that results in joy. Guys, your your last day will be standing in the presence of the full glory of God And that will transform you. That will change you. When you see him, you will be like him, is what 1 John 3, 2 says about when we see Jesus face to face. You will be transformed into someone who is perfectly righteous as the child of God you were always meant to be. And as a child of God, this is the even better part, as a child of God, you will share in your father's glory. Come on, that deserves an amen. Not not that you'll be a peer with God all of a sudden and be glorious like him. No, he's the glorious, the one of all. But you will in some sense share and reflect his glory. So if my sufferings are preparing me for that, what this is telling me is that it's a cause for rejoicing. If my sufferings are getting me ready to be able to appreciate that and enjoy that to the fullest, then what God's word is saying is that it's a reason to delight. There's a, I can't think of the reference off the top of my head now. Some of you can help. Second Corinthians, I think it's five or the end of four. For I believe that these momentary afflictions are worth nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory prepared for us. The cup of our joy, it's got a big capacity, but not big enough to hold in all the joy that Jesus brings. And as it overflows the edge, as it splashes into new places, if we're willing to see it, we might see that it's wound up even in our sufferings. Now, I know I'm getting a little low on time, but um, I shared something up in paradise this morning that was the thing that most people uh, mentioned to me afterwards, and they said, say that tonight in Chico. So I promised them I would. And it has to do with this kind of sobering experience that I had right after I finished preparing the sermon for this week. So it was Thursday, it was the day that I did most of my writing and reading. And I get to the end of the day, I got to a good stopping place with the sermon. I was like, all right, woohoo, I'm done. Well, I called my mom because Thursday, December 2nd, was she and my dad's anniversary. We've been married for 43 years. And um, she answered the phone and she sounded like she felt terrible. And, um, you know, as some of you guys know, this has been a really hard year for my parents. Uh, My mom has had a lot of health problems. And then my dad, um, who has Alzheimer's, has for many years now, um, has just really, really struggled this year where he lives in the memory care facility. 
And so what I've been accustomed to is when I hear my mom pick up the phone like that, I think some, some event has happened. So immediately, what happened? She said, nothing, nothing happened. It's just a really sad day. And um, she had been with my dad and, uh, and he still recognizes us. He, we can still interact with him to a small degree. Um, and we're thankful for that, but it's really hard to see him right now. And I can only imagine how hard it is for his wife celebrating 43 years of marriage, how hard that is for her. And so I had just gotten done spending my entire day reflecting and writing and thinking of cool ways that I could talk about how we rejoice in our suffering. And my mom picks up the phone and it all felt very hollow and empty in that moment. And I even told her, I was like, guess what I've been talking about all day or thinking about all day? She's like, yeah, I, I'm not buying that right now. I'm putting words in her mouth. She's watching tonight probably online and she's like, I didn't say that, sorry. <laughs> but it was along the lines of, yeah, I don't, I don't see that. And so I, I went home and I'm just sort of, my gears are turning and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we did this a little bit last week, right? When we talked about peace, having to acknowledge the fact that the reality the Bible describes doesn't always match up with the reality that we experience. And I feel like there's some folks that would say, well, the problem's with you, get your act together, get on board. And there's other folks that would say, well, the Bible is kind of often fairy tale land and it's not real life. Neither of those are helpful approaches. So what do we do? When I can preach faithfully what the Bible says here and yet when I see real life say, this doesn't feel like we're rejoicing in our sufferings. I don't, I don't know if I can solve it in the last three minutes I have, but I did have a couple of thoughts. Um, so mom, if you're watching, here's what I think. Number one, the purpose of scriptures like this is not con to condemn us or not to make us feel guilty, not to have us read it and be like, I'm not rejoicing enough in my sufferings. <laughs> you know, uh, forgive me, God, I should do that more. And this is telling me I need to be there and I'm not, and I don't know how, it, that's not the point. The point is an invitation, an invitation to say, yes, feel the pain, feel the hurt, feel the sorrow of the situation, but, don't just blow past it without taking a second to realize what my God might be doing through it. And I got this, I was talking to somebody after church this morning and I got this picture in my mind of Sherlock Holmes with his funny little hat, but he's got his magnifying glass and he's in the midst of his suffering and he's looking, where's the joy? I know it's in here somewhere. I don't know if we'll always feel like putting our Sherlock Holmes hat on when we're in the midst of serious suffering. And yet I think the invitation here and the promise is if you're willing, 
to ask God, show me what you're doing. Show me how I can rejoice in this. He might just show you. There's always gonna be something to find. The final thing that I thought of is a reminder to us all that this book did not just float down from heaven as is. It was written by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it is a consequence of real, dirty, messy, painful life. The man that wrote the words that we read tonight <laughs> said at one point in 2 Corinthians, I despaired of life itself. Said later in that same book, we are regarded as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. He's a man that knew hardship, but he doesn't back down from talking about how we can rejoice in our sufferings. And maybe the reason why is because the ultimate man that this whole book is about the God-man Jesus, who we are told in Isaiah was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. This book is not a pie in the sky giving you ideas of things that have, they have no idea what real life is like and how hard it can get. No, it comes from real life. And that's why I don't just write this off as some fantasy, but I say, I wanna take this seriously because I know that my Jesus, he knew sorrow and grief in ways that I can't even imagine. And at the end of the day, in the midst of his pain and agony, Hebrews 12, two says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Like I said, I don't know if this solves all the difficulties when, when we are in the midst of the sorrow and feel like there is nothing to rejoice in, and yet they're just a couple of seeds, a couple of what ifs. Praying and hoping that that joy that is overflowing from a cup of our heart will begin to splash into the most unlikeliest place of all, our suffering. I don't know if that came out in a way that made any sense at all, but I think I need to stop there. We're still gonna take the Lord's Supper together tonight. Uh, we need some time to do that. So let me pray for us and I'll be praying for our taking of the Lord's Supper. So let's do that together now. Father, I ask again, just as I did at the beginning of the sermon, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Father, if, if what I've said in this time is not in alignment with what's true, I pray that you cause it to be forgotten or corrected. And Lord God, as for the meditations of all of our hearts, I pray that your word would stick with us. It would bounce around like it's in an echo chamber and allow us more and more to, to know the truth about what it looks like to rejoice in our sufferings. Lord, it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.
All right, so I hope on your way in, you got one of these element packs.